Let me start off. Uh, let me start off this way. Let me just give a heartfelt welcome. We've got a number of other locations that uh, that tune in, and we surround ourselves and get into God's Word together. And so, I uh, wish I had time to go through all the different stories uh, of what God's doing at each and every 828 uh, Biltmore Church location. From uh, last week's uh, Franklin Campus opening was just uh, standing room only in the second service, so it's phenomenal uh, for that. Great, great, great start. Um, you know, here's, here's what we talk about all the time is that we are one church in a number of different locations, but we have one goal. We surround ourselves with this goal is we want to we glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ that reach up in worship, which hopefully just participated in, that reach in in community, all right? And if you're like, man, I, you know, this church is bigger than what I'm used to, one of the things you need to know is, is that uh, all the folks that you're around, we break this into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of smaller little churches called connect groups. And so maybe you're here and you're like, I've been here for a month and I haven't met anybody at all. If you would uh, do us the favor, do yourself a favor, just text the word connect uh, to 28282. Then what will happen is sometime this week, a pastor will help you try to figure out, hey, what's a small group that we can get involved in? And then we talk about reaching out, not just to 828, but also just so you know that uh, last week uh, we've been partnering with with a, a great church, Summit Church in uh, Raleigh, Durham area, and uh, last week in Brooklyn, New York, all right, uh, a church that we kind of helped relaunch, uh, started last week. They had 65 first-time guests that walked through the door, first time last week in Brooklyn, New York, all right? So great, great job. Great, great job on that. So kind of here's where we are. Is if you haven't been with us, uh, we started last week a series called Christ and Culture. And what we tried to do, and if you haven't, before you uh, write an email about this week, make sure that you look at last week because last week we tried to set up some parameters about what we're trying to what we're trying to accomplish. All right, and as was said earlier, this was like 48% of all the respondents. This was. The cultural moment that you're like, I'm not sure how to navigate my way through this cultural moment and walk in the way of Jesus as a Jesus follower. And then last week, what we did is we said, we don't want to fall into one of two ditches, all right? We don't want to fall into the ditch of condemnation, which is very easy to do. When a culture changes, churches oftentimes bring up the drawbridge, sing our songs, go to our Bible studies, and just wait till Jesus comes back and yet have very little, if any, impact on the culture, all right? Oftentimes, we forgot what it was like when Jesus reached out to us, and so we don't want to fall into the ditch of condemnation, all right? We also don't want to fall into the other ditch of just conformity. Conformity says that when God's word and culture disagree with each other, what that says is culture wins. And we don't want to fall into that ditch either, all right? You don't have a whole lot to say if you don't have uh, to say what Jesus actually said about certain topics. And so what we looked at last week is trying to set a couple of parameters. Parameter number one is deep, humble compassion. Humble compassion. Jesus himself, he loved people, he drew people into a relationship, whether that be prostitutes, tax collectors, whoever, people who were anything like Jesus, nothing like Jesus, somehow or another, they liked Jesus and he showed deep compassion for them. Uh, on the other hand, on coinciding with that, we don't just want to have deep compassion, well, we also want to have very humble, deep conviction. Conviction is, uh, you know what, understanding that Jesus himself he lifted up the highest standards of righteousness. He said, about his, he said about the word, he said, you know what? Not a jot nor a tittle, which are the smallest letters. They're like an apostrophe and a comma in the Hebrew alphabet. None of those, I'm not coming to abolish that, all right? Those things I came to fulfill and I'm not doing away with those at all. 
Jesus said, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so the parallel truths, the paradoxical ministry Jesus had is grace and truth, compassion and conviction. And so when we look at the one today, I, it's, it's tense. I mean, it is tense, and it's tense for a bunch of reasons. It's tense, number one, is because it's personal. It's personal. It's a personal issue for so many of us. It's personal. You have friends. You have family members. You have people that you're like, you know what, I love that person, and I'm hurting for that person. And so it's very personal. Just reading your emails, you could see the deep, personal, and also personal pain. The pain that was there, it was painful because relationships have been changed, they've been altered, in some cases they have been fractured. It's painful also, let's be honest, the church in general, the church historically, the church at large often has not handled this issue particularly well. Either it is just not told the truth about it or it has been very condemning, it's been very shaming, and oftentimes we've had selective moral outrage We have cherry-picked and said, you know what, we are outraged over this sin, and yet at the same time, we've not looked in the mirror and repented of our own sins. And so what's happened is, is that the culture in which we live in now, when they look at a Christian, a self-professing Christian, the first thing that comes to their mind is anti-homosexual. That's not just me. The polls show that young people particularly, when they were asked what is the first thought that comes to their mind when they hear the word Christian, 91% of them included anti-homosexual. 87% said judgmental. 85% said hypocritical. Now, loved ones, I'm not saying that that is necessarily accurate. I'm not even saying there's not to some degree in some articles an agenda. What I am saying is that is the perception. In some cases, we deserve that perception. In some cases, we deserve that. And then it's oftentimes confusing. It's confusing for a bunch of different reasons. There's articles coming out left and right, or people born gay. If they are born gay, is that, does that make a difference? Uh, many people will say, well, I don't see anywhere where Jesus actually used the word homosexual anywhere in the Bible. And then in the last about 30 years, there has been kind of a movement, mainly in the West, that has said, you know what, I don't even think the Bible teaches against this. I think the overarching trajectory of the Bible says that, you know what, if we just love people, then the rest of the Bible passages regarding this issue, they've been misinterpreted. So here's my goal today. Uh, We are starting a little bit earlier. This will probably be the most technical sermon you'll ever hear, for me at least, all right? It's probably the most technical. It's probably the most, uh, it's probably the longest. I'll just give you that up front, all right? Probably the longest one. But here's the, here's the goal, is number one is ask the question and try to answer it. What does the Bible actually say, all right? What does the Bible actually say? Just up front, I'm a Christian pastor. We're a Bible church first and foremost. That's what we do. So what does the Bible actually say about same-sex relationships? I will go through four or five separate texts today. If you're used to being here, that is not our modus operandi. What we normally do is we will take one text Four verses, one verse, 10 verses, one passage, one narrative, and work it through. And because of a number of different reasons, we're going to have to look at four or five today to kind of give you a general overview. That's the first question, though, is what does the Bible actually say about it? I want to do this respectfully. I want to do it thoughtfully. More time was spent on this than Actually, I think any time in the history of any, ever since I've been preaching, more prep went into this message than any other, at least hour-wise, than any other message I've ever done. And number two is then, uh, 
Number one is, what does the Bible say? And number two is, how do we love and serve the gay community as Jesus would love and serve the gay community? Okay, number one, what does the Bible say? What is the position? Number two is, what is the posture? How do we love and serve people who we might disagree with in this issue, right? So what does the Bible say? And there are scores of passages that deal with a biblical sexual ethic. There's tons and tons about a biblical sexual ethic, right? There's five or six that deal with homosexuality and same-sex relationships specifically. Now, let me give this up front, all right? Listen carefully. I'm going to use the terms today, historical and progressive. Historical and progressive. Those are the least inflammatory terms that I can utilize. There's a lot of baggage. There's a lot of labels that come along with different ones. So the the best ones that I can use, remember John Tyson up in New York City who I referenced uh, you last week and he's on the resource page that you can uh, go to after. You'll see a slide on the screen uh, afterwards today. But he used the words historical and progressive and I think that's probably the best labels. And here's what I mean by that. It's a fair term because basically for about 1965 years, all major Christian denominations, I use, I mean, denominations, all Christian viewpoints, all Christian thoughts, Anglican, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, they held to the same sexual ethic on this issue. Over the last 30 or so years, progressive writers, primarily in the West, have begun to question what the Bible actually teaches about this. Let me just say up front, I hold to the historic position. I told to the orthodox position and will give you a few reasons why I do not find the progressive argument either compelling or convincing in any way. And so uh, I'm gonna have to go through, I will not be able to hit every different argument. What I tried to do is look at the ones that you have probably heard that you might've struggled with and I'm gonna give you two or three things and again, they're resources at the end. This is not gonna be a Bible drill, but there's gonna be five or six passages. The first one, we will spend time, the last message of this series, but let's walk through it because this is ground zero when it comes to God's sexual ethic. All right, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, real quickly, some of you are like, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 seem different. All right, why are there two creation accounts? Really quickly on that, because that throws people. Genesis 1 is like a 10,000-foot view of creation. All right, Genesis 2, God lands the plane, and he begins to talk about some specifics about what he talked about in chapter 1. Let me just give you a couple of verses here to to begin the, the talk. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, oftentimes in Latin, it's like the Imago Dei. Men and women are made in the image of God. Every person you see is made in the image of God, is worthy of respect, worthy of being able to say, you know what, you are loved and you are made by Almighty God. In the image of God, he created him male and female, male and female. In the Hebrew, that's ish and isha. Ish is male, isha is female. Now, I know you didn't come here for a Hebrew lesson. I know you didn't come here for a Greek lesson. So we're going to do a little bit more of that than normal just because certain things have been kind of misapplied that I want to try to, as best I can, provide some clarity to. Next verse. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. All right. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now jump to uh, chapter 2. Now this is somewhat of a restatement but more specific. And let me just, let me point out a couple of things. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, just real quickly, ladies, don't get upset about the word helper. Helper is actually the word is zar, E-Z-A-R, which actually is used mostly for God himself. It's like, you know what, when it would say, Izar, God would be the helper of Israel. It's certainly not a subordinate term. It's certainly not a derogatory term. It's used of God, and then it's used of, of you as well. But here's the word we're going to come back to. It's the word fit. A helper fit. Some of your translations say suitable. A helper suitable for him. So we're going to come back to that. Verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Verse 20, or verse 19. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit. Same word earlier, fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, fashioned into a woman, and brought her to the man. Now check out these next few verses. This is where you, you got to understand what is about to be said here is ground zero for the New Testament writers. The New Testament writers go back to these verses. Jesus goes back to these verses when he talks about the sexual ethic of the Bible. So here's what he says. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now these next two verses are gonna be a little bit more familiar. They're familiar, you've probably heard them in wedding ceremonies and you thought that's so cute. This is what Jesus goes back to. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now keep in mind, this is the type, this is the prototype for marriage. You're like, how do you know that? Well, I'm going to show you a few things, but first of all, he's saying this right now, and Adam and Eve, they don't even have a father. Leave what father? He's the first one, all right? So he's saying this is the prototype. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so uh, let's kind of unpack this a little bit. This is the beautiful poetic account of the creation of the world and the design for human flourishing. It's also an introduction to both gender and sexuality. Again, New Testament writers, when they want to know and want to affirm and want to go back and say, what is God's sexual ethic? They go back to Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. This is before what is known as the fall of mankind, which is in Genesis three. Jesus and the New Testament address sexuality, and when they address sexuality at all, they go back to this account. And again, we're going to look at this a little closer in the last week, but let me make some basic observations. Number one, uh, sex and sexuality is good. It's good, all right? It's good, all right? God invented sex. There's nothing wrong with sex. It's awesome, all right? Sexuality is good. And they were created, though, him, and he created them very differently. The emphasis in verse 27 is male and female, equal but distinct, ish and ish ah. So sexuality is good. Second observation, reproduction is good. Reproduction is good. He says, you go, you be fruitful, and you multiply. Number three, marriage is good. He says, a man will leave his father and mother. Again, this is the type, this is the pattern for sexuality. Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, listen to this real carefully. This is kind of a 
overarching summary statement. Genesis 3, sin enters into the world. When sin enters into the world, every time from there on out, every time the Bible talks about sexual sin, any kind of sexual sin, heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, anytime it talks about sexual sin, it does so by designating something outside the realms of Genesis 1 and 2, every time. Oftentimes it uses a general word, porneia, but every time it talks about sexual sin, heterosexual or homosexual, any kind at all, it says, you know what, it's outside the bonds of a male and a female in the bonds of a covenant marriage in a monogamous relationship every single time. And so uh, let me make a couple of uh, observations here, not to get super deep in here, we got a bunch to cover. But in 2.18, it says he will make a helper suitable for him, all right? Uh, let me show you this one word up here, and again, this is not to get uh, crazy here. This is the word in the Hebrew for uh, suitable or fit. And the reason I gotta do this is because some people are like, well, it, the progressive argument basically says this. It says, when God says, I will bring a helper suitable for him, what they say he's referring to is not a female, but another human. In other words, you're saying, you know, it's like the helper suitable for him when he's saying it's not good, it's not good, it's not good. They're saying it's not good because the cow doesn't match him, the giraffe doesn't match him. And he says, really, the only thing that makes a person suitable is that that person will be a human. And what I'm gonna show you is not only is it distinctively made a difference in Genesis 1:27 when he says it's male and female, I created them as if the emphasis is there, but also this word right here. This is actually two words. If you were to put a line right through these, this word, this is kind of, this is a compound word. This is the first word. And it does mean like, it means like, K, it means like. What's important to know then is this word right here, the second half, it means opposite of, or in the face of, or distinct from. And so what all throughout all th scholars all throughout the last 1,965 years, they've all said, you know, a helper suitable. It's hard to translate, but what it means is she's like him, but she's distinct from him. She's like him, but she's a human. She's not the giraffe. She's not the cow. She's not that. She's a human, but she's distinct. She's woman. She's woman. You're like, that's deep for me. All right, let me give you, let me give you some other ones. Let's jump on these other ones. Here's one that oftentimes, go to the, here's, here's two verses out of Leviticus, and I know the people are like, well, Leviticus is not relevant to us, and we'll, we'll come to that. That's a very common argument. Um, he says very clearly, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, one more verse. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. You're like, dog, that is harsh. Let me, let me give, kind of give you what's going on in Leviticus. And by the way, let me just make a note here. I'll just go ahead and say this up front. The text does not say that homosexuals are an abomination to God. That's not what the text is saying, all right? When people are like, you know what, it's a, they're, a home, they're an abomination. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying that the sin is, and ultimately all sin is an abomination to God, including the sin of greed and materialism that Jesus mentions, by the way, 10 times more than he does sexual sin, all right? God loved the sinner so much that he came to earth to die in our place, all right? So at the cross, you see God's hatred for the sin. God took the punishment for us. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. You don't die for somebody you hate, all right? 
You don't die for somebody you hate. So it's not saying that they are an abomination. It's saying that the sin itself is. Now, some of you are like, well, I'm not even sure I go with that. Let me give you the context briefly in Leviticus. Uh, In the context of Leviticus, the children of Israel are about to enter the promised land. And what God is trying to do in the book of Leviticus is show a different ethic for his people as they go into the promised land. And when they go into the promised land, he says, you know what? You're going to drive out people who are amazingly corrupt, and I don't want you to be like them. And so the entire book of Leviticus is about one word, and that word is holiness. Eighty-seven times in the book of Leviticus, you'll see the word holy or holiness. Eighty-seven times. It's all about holiness. That's the whole book, all right? So it's like we got priests. They're supposed to be holy people. There's certain clothes you wear. Those are holy clothes. There's the tabernacle. That's the holy place. And so the whole thing is about holiness. God is holy. Now, the question usually gets kind of put there, and when a Bill Maher or whoever, anybody who wants to slam any part of the New Testament sexual ethic, they're like, well, man, Leviticus, is that even still relevant today? I mean, what about eating bacon? I mean, I saw you eating bacon and wearing polyester, and what about tattoos, and what about all that stuff, all right? And those are, those are legit questions. Usually, they're legit questions. But the question really is, is Leviticus still relevant? Because you're like, man, it says some crazy stuff. You guys pick and choose all the time. Now, a couple of comments. You, you don't just throw, if you're a New Testament Christian, if you're a Christ follower, you can't If you're trying to follow Christ, you can't just throw the book of Leviticus or the Old Testament out the window, okay? You can't say, oh, I'm a new covenant guy. I'm throwing the Old Testament out. You can't do that because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus quoted Leviticus 19 more than any other verse. You will love your neighbor. So you don't just throw it out. The New Testament, right? Peter, Paul, they both quote Leviticus a number of different times. And so you can't just throw it out. So, uh, matter of fact, you look at 18, 19, and 20, which is kind of a collection. It's very similar to uh, what Jesus preached at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you see some of the same kind of ethics, things like adultery and theft and hating your brother. And then at the start of it, he says, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Okay, so here's what you gotta go. You gotta go, okay, what does it mean when it says Jesus came to fulfill the law? Listen, this is really crucial because this covers a multitude of things. When Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, what does that mean? Scholars over the years have looked at the Old Testament and seen there are about three different ways that the law can be categorized, right? You're not going to see this in the table of contents, but people have looked at it and say, okay, you see when you compare this and you see what the New Testament teaches about the Old Testament, here's basically the categories, The first one is what's called a ceremonial law. That's what gives people the most issue, all right? Ceremonial. Ceremonial were things that God wanted to do and show that he was holy and he wanted a holy people, okay? Things like the sacrificial system. Leviticus has a lot of the sacrificial system. Why do we not do that today? Why do we, if the book of Leviticus says that we're supposed to sacrifice a lamb, why do we not do that? And people are like, you don't do that, so you're just cherry picking parts of the Bible you want to follow. We don't do that because the New Testament says not to do that. We don't sacrifice a lamb. Why? Because John chapter 1 says that, you know what? Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the fulfillment of this ceremonial law. What we saw in shadow and shades back then, we see clearly in the gospels. All right, That's the ceremonial law. Second one is what's called typically the civil law. Civil law are laws that God gave a theocracy, the nation of Israel, as they moved into a particular place. This is how I want you to set up a nation. We do not live in a theocracy. We don't live in a theocracy. Those are not relevant. We don't stone people to death because of certain things. 
But the third part is called the moral law, the moral law. The moral law are binding for all people at all times. The New Testament itself, the authors use these very passages to determine God's sexual ethic. Listen to me. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about this, goes back into the book of Leviticus, and almost every New Testament scholar says what he does is he takes the words in the book in the Hebrew and he takes them and he squishes them around in such a way is that it actually is going back to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 to use it. You're like, well, what does it say in the New Testament? What does it say in the New Testament? All right, let me go to the New Testament for a second. Here is uh, Matthew 19. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So right up front, I do understand that the context of this passage is divorce. It's not same-sex relationships. It's, it's, it's about, but what you're going to see is he takes the question and then uses it as a pulpit to talk about God's sexual ethic throughout the whole passage. Here's what he says. And he answered them, have you not read? What is he doing? He's talking to people who understood Genesis 1 and 2 extremely well, and he's kind of insulting them. He's saying, have you not read? And here's what he does. He quotes, he quotes Genesis 1:27, which we looked at, and then he goes ahead and quotes Genesis 2. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, from the beginning, made them male and female? And said, therefore, and this is where he skips to chapter two, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. All right, so that's, uh, I'll tell you what, one, one more verse. And they are no longer two, but one flesh. Virtually every scholar says to some degree, either 100% or partially, this is dealing with the intimacy between a husband and a wife. And then he concludes by saying what therefore God has joined together, fused together, put together, do not let man separate. All right, so let's talk about this. The, again, it is clear that Jesus uses the question of divorce here as a pulpit to start preaching about how marriage is defined, how it is designed. And in Genesis 1 and 2, he talks about gender complementarity. He talks about divine design. People, when people say Jesus never spoke about that, when people say Jesus never spoke about same-sex relationships, technically, technically that's true, but it's really not true. It's disingenuous to say that for a number of reasons. There's several different ways you can say something's wrong or something is right. Okay. First of all, he said, you know what? The Old Testament, I'm not bagging the whole thing. The moral law there is the moral law that I'm teaching. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't minimize it. He actually maximized it. So he didn't lower the bar. He actually raised the bar. When you say he never spoke about it, that's not exactly true. You see here, he affirms the creative order. He affirms the Mosaic law that said sex was designed between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage and then again, it is true that he did not list out all possible deviations from the Genesis 1 and 2 account. There's two ways you can declare something is wrong. You can list out, one way is you can list out every possible derivation from the design. That is one way you can do that. And Jesus does not do that, by the way. There's a lot of things that you and I would assume are not right that he doesn't actually mention. But you can do it a couple, or you can affirm what is right. If there are five women, if I were to put five women up here on the stage, I could easily, and one of them was Lori, my wife, I could designate Lori one of two ways. I could say, those four, they're not my wife, or I could just do one thing and say, that is my wife. That's my wife. Either way, what I'm saying is that is her. It's not just that is her, it's saying that those are not her either. Second thing would be Jesus was a Jew. Okay, please understand that. Jesus was not a 
pasty white Norwegian looking blonde haired blue eyed guy. That's not, that's what the pictures say. That's not what he was, all right? That's not what he was. When you look at the history, when you look at the culture, every indication would be he's a short haired, brown skinned, Hebrew speaking Jew. He talked mainly to Jews. Almost exclusively, we talked to Gentiles a little bit. Listen to me carefully. Every Jewish writer, every Jewish writer from 500 years before Jesus to 400 years after Jesus said that same-sex relationships were against the will of God. Everyone. And so as a Jew, you're like, why didn't he talk more about it? Because if he's talking to Jews as a Jew, and for 500 years before it, everybody he's talking to already understood that, that he would not have repeated it. He would have said, this is what God's design is. Let me give you one more verse. Now, these are, this is kind of the one that is, takes the most time. And I want to make sure we spend plenty of time, not just to talk about a position, but about a posture. Okay. It's just as easy to sin by your position as it is your posture toward the position. Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them up. And I'm going to come back to the context. This is a very important one. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. Now, guys and, and ladies, just so you know, the first part of this passage, when he says impurity right now, he's not just talking about same-sex relationships. He's talking about anything outside of Genesis 1 and 2. Let me just be clear. I understand I represent as a male heterosexual the group of people that break that command more than anybody else in the world, all right? It's the male heterosexuals, what do we do? We keep the prostitution industry in business, we keep the pornography business in, in business, we keep the sex slave in business, male. So before you sit there and go, I can't believe, that's what it's talking about. So before we sit there and kind of look down the moral judgment, understand we gotta look at sin in the mirror before you look at sin on the television, all right? And all the men that didn't amen said, uh-oh, all right, so therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then he widens it a little bit. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. This is what Romans 1 is all about. It's about idolatry. It's about I am actually, I'm the boss I'm gonna worship the gifts, not the giver. I'm gonna worship the creation, not the creator. And he served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Now go to verse 26 and 26, Listen, look at this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. All right, um, like what do you do with that? Let me give you the big picture of Romans 1. The big picture of Romans 1 is every single person at church today, you have the same problem. Everybody was in the same boat. We have all turned away from the knowledge of God that God has made clear either through creation or through our consciences. All of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and the first half of Romans 3 is basically this, is that the human race has rejected God. The human race has said, I don't want the creator, I want the creation. I don't want the giver, I want the gift and forget the giver. And so the first part of Romans 1, the human race, when we rejected God's authority, listen to me, it condemns both gay people and straight people. 
Romans chapter one condemns both gay and straight. As a matter of fact, the next couple of verses talk about sins like covetousness and malice and slander and gossip. <laughs> to be blunt, right, for three and a half chapters, the book of Romans is like the worst case scenario you can imagine. Chapter one is we're all damned and going to hell and we got no chance. That's chapter one. You're like, that's why I come to church here, because I get good news. That's chapter one, all right? That's chapter one. Chapter one is you and I are a black-hearted sinner with no hope at all. Chapter two is if you're a Jew, you don't have anything to stand on either. And chapter three is you're Gentile, you don't have anything to stand on either. That's basically what that is. Until you get to what our whole church is supposed to be about, and that is verse 21 of Romans chapter three that says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all who believe. All right, so what does that mean? That's what I always talk about. We say that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, all right? It's like, there's coming a one, there's coming a one, there's coming a one. It's not a bull, it's not a goat. That's not gonna permanently take away your sin. Then John the Baptist says the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And then the book of Romans, which is the most clear-cut doctrinal book in the entire New Testament, it says this. The law and the prophets talked about it, but now you see it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All right, so again, let me... Uh, let me be clear. Let me try to phrase these. I try to think of a way to phrase certain things that, because uh, I know some of you are going to take one verse and you're going to, hey, you may listen carefully, all right? Homosexuality, homos people are like, why is he picking on homosexuality? Homosexuality in and of itself does not take and send somebody to hell any more than heterosexuality sends somebody to heaven. You understand that? It's not about heterosexuality or homosexuality, it's about repentance, all right? It's about repentance. The righteous churchgoer who never repents and embraces Jesus by faith goes to hell just like the person who is in same-sex relationships and destroying his life. Same thing. You're like, how do you know that? Because what sends you to hell is refusing to allow Jesus to be Lord and center of your life regardless of how that manifests itself. It might manifest itself in your refusal to let Jesus be Lord over your sexual life or obey him with your money or your control or your career or whatever. It's not where you express the lack of lordship in your life, it's do you express that. So let me say it again. Um, the, gospel is not, the gospel is not change your ways and come to Jesus. The gospel is Jesus paid for your sin. He paid for your sin. You repent and embrace him by faith and then he changes you from the inside out. And so again, there's no room for moral pride. It's an offense. It's an, it is an offense, loved ones. It is an offense to look down your moral nose, according to Romans 1, at the homosexual acts in Romans 1 and yet let us ignore our own greed and slander and envy and covetousness and judgmentalism, which are also mentioned in Romans 1 as well. Bible's clear, we all have a tendency to turn aside from God. We all have a bent to turn away and rebel against God. The question is, where is that? We all have that tendency. All of us were born, listen to me, all of us were born not only with a bent to sin, we were all born with a bent to sexual sin. You don't believe that? Let me just give you a couple of things to think about. Romans chapter five, verse 19 says, for as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. David would say, in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. The idea is we were born with a bent to rebel against God. And if you and I don't ever respond to the gospel, that bent never even gets changed at all. 
Now, the reason that's important to understand, a bunch of different reasons, is this. is uh, here's, The culture says that your na- the natural explanation, the natural explanation of something requires a moral obligation to do something. Now, listen to me carefully. Right now, we are living in a cultural time, kind of unlike it's been, at least to this extent, that basically says this, that you have to be true to your authentic self. You've got to, the number one rule is you be true to your authentic self. You know what? By the way, that's not the Christian worldview. You understand that? The Christian worldview is not to be authentic to your own self. The Christian worldview is actually die to yourself and live to Jesus, all right? It's to pick up your cross and follow me. That's the Christ follower. So when you look at things like this, I'll give you one example. I saw a uh, Time Magazine cover and it said this. Time Magazine said, infidelity may be in our genes. That's what it said. Infidelity may be in our genes. Now just think logically with me for a second. Does that mean that because a married man has an innate desire for sex with a woman who is not his wife, he must fulfill that desire in order to be his fully authentic self? Bro, try that at home, all right? Try that on, try that on your wife. I'm just trying to find my authentic self and so I slept with somebody's like, man, she's gonna find her authentic nine millimeters, what she's gonna, that's what she's gonna find, all right? That's not an excuse just because you say, you know what, I felt like it. And again, the reason it's important to understand that solving the whole, because there's a bunch of studies out and everybody's like, well, is there a gay gene? Is it nature? Is it nurture? You know, first of all, avoid simplistic answers, all right? Avoid, it, is, it is dishonoring to the gospel of Jesus for you to use crass, little, cliche, bumper sticker theology in this. Every study says this is very complex. It, it does. Is it, is it biological? Is it sociological? Whatever, okay? I would say within the realm of orthodox theology, you could see same-sex attraction, which is not the same feeling one way and acting on it are two separate things. You understand that? Feel, that's the whole point. Feeling something and acting on it are two different things. But even if that was, even it's like, I find that, I find that, that is, that's the way I feel. Preston uh, Sprinkle, who's in the resource book, he's got a book called People to be Loved, which is a very good book I would, I would recommend. He says this, just because someone is born with a particular desire, even a seemingly fixed desire, doesn't mean it is automatically moral to act on that desire. Let me read one affirming author. An affirming author, Justin Lee, here's what he says. He says the same thing. Again, this is not some Christian author. This is not like Tim Keller. This is an affirming author. He says this, just because an attraction or drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on it. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people's same-sex attractions were inborn, that wouldn't necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agreed that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. Is it sin and does it have biological roots are two completely separate questions. Separate questions. Now, Romans 1, 26 and 27, and we're gonna get to how we actually minister. Romans 21, Romans 1, 26 and 27, he's not picking on homosexuality. He's not picking on it. One author put it this way, If God made us in his image, male and female, then it should not surprise us that the effects of our rejection of us show up in these primary relationships. 
I got to give two things real quick because when I was confronted with this three or four years ago, I was like taken back. And then I had to figure out how do I research this without covenant eyes, you know, get, you know, slamming what I'm, what I'm researching. So here's what, here's what it is. In recent years, some have tried to say that the passage in Romans 1 refers only to certain kinds. Listen carefully. I promise you will hear this. If you've got a grandson that's struggling with SSA, if you've got, you're going to hear this. So listen carefully to this. I didn't know how to answer this as, as little back as three or four years ago. But in recent years, some have tried to say that the passage in Roman 1 refers only to certain kinds of promiscuous homosexual acts, prostitution, one-night stands, or the one that's pushed the most is masters that were forcing slaves to have sex with them, all that kind of stuff. And they would say, well, Paul was simply unfamiliar with a committed, loving, monogamous, homosexual union that we see today, and if he had known those, he would have made a distinction. Now, please hear me on this. That is factually not true. That's, that's factually not true. It is true that there were definitely master-slave relationships. There were certainly prostitution. There were certainly enormous, enormous, egregious, aggressive sin. But it's not true to say that enduring, committed, same-sex relationships were not there. They certainly were in the Roman world. Paul, as a traveling Roman, certainly would have known about it. Let me give you a couple of ones, and you can... Uh, a Plutarch, all right? Let me go ahead and make a reference that that's the first time in 11 years I've ever said the word Plutarch from the pulpit. But Plutarch, who wrote in the first century, he makes a distinction between homosexual sex for mere pleasure, which he considered unworthy, and homosexual practice rooted in a committed relationship, which he said is beautiful. In one of Plato's works, he mentions two adult men who were lovers for more than 10 years. Historian Thomas Hubbard, who is not a Christian, by the way, he wrote the definitive work on homosexuality in the ancient world, and he says that homosexuality in Greece and Rome, which is the title of the book, he shows that homosexuality existed in a wide variety of forms in the Greek and Roman world, including committed same-sex partners. Okay, so that's just not a viable thing. The, the argument is Paul looked out his window when he was writing Romans, and he didn't have any idea what it would be like to have a committed same-sex relationship now. And furthermore, if you look, there's not any instance, because it says in the text, it says not just man to man, but woman to woman. There's not a single instance about a woman using power in that way over a woman in the Roman world. There's no, there's no, rec there's no secular record of it. And so the point would be this, is historically, the historical position is the one that has by far, in my mind, the most compelling evidence biblically. So you got to ask this, how do you then minister to people like that? And I've taken too much time on the other ones, so listen quickly, but I want to just make sure you understand this. This is so important. How do we minister? Because some of you, again, like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? If you came today just looking for some ammunition to fire at your friend who is a, in a same-sex relationship, you have the, you've already, like, failed church today, okay? You need to repent of that. So, but how do you love like Jesus? Again, compassion and conviction, grace and truth. Obviously, we need to take the log out of our own eye. Because of the gospel, we can run to God in repentance. But we also don't gloss it over. We don't gloss over your sin. We don't gloss over my sin. It's with deep humility is what the gospel should lead us to. Listen to me. We're not waging war. We're not waging a war against the homosexuals, all right? Jesus won and fought the only war that matters, and that's the war against sin and death. And he fought it for us. He fought it for, the, he fought it for all of us, homosexual or not. That means judgmentalism. That means haughtiness. That means pride. 
That means crass jokes are completely out of the picture for the gospel-following, Jesus-following Christian. So what does it look like? Let me give you, this is the one that was the most eye-opening for me. And this is, the, this is the only way I can know how to put it. When I asked the question, how did Jesus deal with sinners in his day? Or put it another way, how come people that were anything like Jesus liked Jesus I tried to think, when you look at what's actually in the New Testament, when Jesus interacted, not everybody liked him, but how come he was known as a friend of sinners, and how come 91% of our culture would say, you know what, they're not a friend of sinners? How come that would be? And the first thing that came to mind is, how do we correct that, is we lead with love. We lead with love. Some of you are like, you're about to compromise. It's like, shut up, all right? I'm not about to compromise, all right? The idea is you lead with love. You lead with love, not the law. You lead with, well, I gotta get to the law. Hold on, hold on, all right, Hoss, hold on. Lead with love, not the law. Look at all the relationships Jesus had that we're privy to see in the New Testament. Jesus rarely started a relationship with the law. Sometime he did, the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. That's an exception, okay? But the vast majority, he started with love and acceptance and embracing versus the law. I'll give you about five quick examples. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. Then he heads off in Matthew 8 to meet people. Here are the people that he met. Matthew 8, he meets a military leader. Military leader is super, super, he's a Roman military leader, super oppressive of the, Jew, of the Jewish people. He was violent. He was oppressive. He heard people, he probably heard people that Jesus even knew, they were pagans, they were violent, and yet he doesn't even mention that at first. All he does is like, all right, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Matthew chapter nine, Matthew the tax collector says, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and he followed him. Now again, we don't have time to unpack Matthew the tax collector, but basically he was an extortionist. He's the one that extorted money for the Roman government in order to pay for the army that was oppressing the people that Matthew actually loved. And yet in the text, at least, you don't see Jesus talking about the tax code yet, okay? You don't see him talking about that. You see him saying, come and follow me. Now, my guess is that later on, they had some conversations around the campfire about the extortion, but it's just not right here. Here's the classic one, Zacchaeus. All right, everybody thinks Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, and I love that little children's story. That guy was a black-hearted sinner too, all right? He was extorting, he was extorting people. When you read that whole story, Jesus speaks two times. Here's what he says. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. You know what he's saying? Somehow he goes and he fellowships with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus repents and embraces Christ by faith. And then the story actually goes on and says that, you know what? Zacchaeus went and started to repay everybody that he'd stolen from. Not because Jesus made it so clear, but because you know what? He was changed from the inside and then the outside started to change. Uh, let me give you a... Uh, the summary verse, Luke 15, 1 says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Listen, here's the best statement that I read all week long. It wasn't because their behavior, it was like, why do they like Jesus? Why do they like Jesus? How come they don't like me a lot of times? And here's what I finally figured out. It wasn't because their behavior was affirmed, it was because their humanity was affirmed. Listen to it. It wasn't because their behavior was affirmed. 
Nowhere do you see him go, oh, keep on sinning, keep on sinning. You never see that. He was like so righteous and he never compromised at all. And it wasn't because he affirmed their sin, it's because he affirmed their humanity. And that's where we miss it. That's where we miss it. A lot of times for us, they're a voting block. They're a a people to scorn. All right, now don't clap because we're gonna get to you in a second, all right? So just here's here's the idea. Remember Billy Graham was asked, what if, you're, what if you're one of your kids were gay? What if one of your kids was gay? What would you do? What would you do? What would you do? And he said, I think I'd love him just a little bit more. I think I'd love him a little bit more. Golly. Man, may we, may we all have that kind of gospel focus. Jesus befriended sinners starting with us. So what do we do? We welcome people into our lives. If you're sitting going, they got to know where I stand. They need to know where I stand. They're going to know where you stand, bro. Right? They probably already know where you stand. The question is not, do they know where you stand? The old saying is, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, all right? What you've got to understand is, you know what? Do you love them like Jesus loved you and brought you near? Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us, all right? So if if you've been saved for so long, if you've been religious for so long, if you've been Baptist for so long, you forgot what it's like to be saved or or forgot to be lost. Lead with love, don't lead with the law. I'll give you, I got to bust through these, but you you do have to love enough to tell them the truth. You don't do anybody any favors. Listen to me. You don't do anybody any favors to act like you're smarter than God is. You understand that? You don't do anybody any favors like, well, I'm just going to, as we said last week, if God never disagrees with you, if he likes the same people you like and hates the same people you hate, chances are you just remade God into your own image. If you and Jesus never disagree, are you really following the God of the Bible? Let me just give you one story. When you love them enough to tell them the truth, Rosaria Butterfield, who uh, she actually wrote a tremendous book. I don't know if it's on your resources or not, but hers was The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was uh, a practicing lesbian, professor of literature and women's study at Syracuse. She says in her book that Romans 1 is the passage that brought her to Christ. And the pastor who ended up leading her to Christ refused at first because he used Romans 1, but at first he refused to argue about her lesbianism. He told her that according to Romans 1, the real issue was who got to call the shots in her life, how she defined herself, how she sought fulfillment. And in the book, she says this, in Romans 1, God revealed my heart to me. In Romans 1, she says, Paul shows us that we all go through what Eve went through in the Garden of Eden. And we have to ask, who gets to declare what is good? What is the What is Lord in my life? My desires are God's word. She says, quote, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil. Play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than pleasure for his glory. So the question is again, as a Christ follower, the basic definition of discipleship is where Jesus and I disagree, he's right, I'm wrong. By God's grace and by his power, I will change. That's a Christ follower, all right? And if you're struggling with that, you're struggling with that, and you're like, I'm not sure, I feel, it's so strong. Again, it's not about the way you feel, it's about the behavior. It's about your identity, all right? It's about your identity. It, that might be true of you, but for the Christ follower, that's not the truest thing about you. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you've been cleansed, you've been redeemed, you've been bought back. That's the truest thing about you. And so uh, here's the part I want to leave you with. 
Okay, you gotta know something. You gotta know that God's laws lead to flourishing. You gotta know that somewhere in there. You gotta understand that when he says, thou shalt not, it's like, please be careful, Hell, be careful, be careful, be careful, danger. Okay? God is not a God of killjoy. God is a God who wants us to enjoy him. And so those laws are there to put for our protection. But the second thing you gotta understand is this. God's laws lead to flourishing, but it's God's love that people are really looking for. God's love is what leads to fulfillment. So you lead, you lead with love, you love enough to actually tell the truth. I think Keller put it this way. He says, our sexual desires go down to our very core. They are so deep that it's easy to want to define ourselves by them. But we need to realize that sex isn't the answer to our soul's desire. It's the question. We're all thirsty and starving for love, but the love that we need isn't the love of another human being. It is the love of God. And so church, here's what we're saying is our message doesn't start with morals. It starts with a Messiah, that's where it starts, all right? It starts with Jesus, not clean yourself up and come to Jesus, all right? So just be clear, when you look at Jesus on the cross, the last words on the cross were not go fix yourself. The last words on the cross were, it is finished, all right? And so you see it over and over again. Let me give you one quick example. John chapter eight is a classic passage where the woman comes and she's got all this sexual sin. She was brought to the feet of Jesus. The religious people were shaming her. But in John chapter eight, verse 11, it says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Order is big, order is big. She didn't change her life to get to Jesus. Jesus she came to Jesus and then let Jesus change her life. She says, I've never known that kind of love, that kind of compassion, that kind of acceptance. And when she did that, then her life was changed. So here's kind of where we are. Here's what I wanna just do at all of our campuses. Uh, We're gonna have a couple minutes where, we, where we, we, we pray. I don't know where you are. I would say there's probably two categories today. Category number one is, you got, just based on your emails, there's a lot of pain. You got people you love very, very much. And I would invite you at whatever campus, and I'm gonna ask actually our leaders at whatever campus you're at, because this can be an uncomfortable time to pray. All right, what are people gonna think if I go pray? You know what? Uh, the, doesn't matter, but I'm gonna ask our leaders, particularly if you're a connect group teacher, because here's what I know about if you're a connect group teacher, people in your connect group in some form or fashion are hurting. Either they're struggling personally, or they know somebody who they deeply love, they're not sure how to minister and how to navigate in the way of Jesus, all right? So if you're a connect group teacher, go ahead right now. Connect group teacher, just come up and pray for your class if that's all you got, all right? Connect group teacher, come up and pray for your class. If, you, uh, if you've got a friend or a family member and you're like, man, I might have... Maybe you blew it, all right? Maybe you blew it. Maybe you were overly harsh. Maybe you were haughty. Maybe you were anything but humble, anything but Jesus. Maybe you cut the relationship off instead of drawing near to them. Then I'm gonna invite you to come up and pray. You got a child, you've got a grandchild, you've got a person at work, and just pray, God, would you help them have a life-defining, identity-changing experience with Jesus Christ? And then lastly, I would say this. There's a lot of us, to be blunt, you don't wanna come up here, but you've got some stuff in your life that you know, you know, you know, God has been pointing in your chest and saying, this is not at the center of your life. You've been looking at all this other stuff and you've been looking down your nose, but you know what, bottom line is, I don't have your money, I don't have your marriage, I don't have your contentment, I don't have your work, I don't even have your parenting for Pete's sake. And God called, so basically repentance, 
for the person coming out of SSA can look very strikingly similar to you repenting of your greed, of your materialism, of your haughtiness, of your covetousness, of your gossip. It can look very much the same. 